additionally, if you're going to have cameras, um, you're going to want to have patients that come in should be, like I said, be made aware. Now, whether that's through signage on the walls saying, you know, this is a recorded area, doesn't hurt to have in place. But what you'll also want to know is whether they've given you permission to be recorded. They may not be required everywhere, but it is good in general to put them on notice. And if you're going to be gathering permission, I mean, have it written. My name is Steven Smith, and this is the Three Pi Squared ABA Business Leaders Podcast. On this podcast, we discuss the business of ABA and how to create an ethical and sustainable ABA practice. For more information on our ABA Business Leaders membership or any of the other services and products we provide, you can check us out at www.3piesquared.com. On this episode, we talk to John Sill. He's the president and founder of Sill Law Office. And we discuss questions that the ABA business leaders membership had around DBAs, having cameras, the cost of training, and much more. I think you'll enjoy this episode. If you'd like to hear more about John Sill and answers that he provides, check out our membership at 3piesquare.com. Today, we have an attorney on who's going to answer uh, some of our questions, and it is John uh, Sills, and hopefully he'll be able to help us navigate some of these really difficult questions. So John, with that, please introduce yourself and thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you for having me. I specialize in contracts and small business law. I've been working with Stephen a little bit off and on, licensed in the state of Kansas. Happy to help answer some questions with these topics as needed, I guess. So attorney questions, what advice do you have for a business owner who is using a DBA or a doing business as? Taking a step back, yep. uh, just uh, my required legal disclaimer, forgot to mention, um, anything talked about in this discussion does not constitute legal advice. This is for educational purposes only. In the event that you do need legal advice on topics like this, do please consult an attorney in your that is uh, licensed in your jurisdiction. So that being said, you know, happy to give some tips here on what we the questions we have going forward. As far as advice I have for business owners that are using a DBA, um, it's very important as a business owner to check what you have locally as far as state, city, things like that, what your laws are for DBAs. It's important to understand that not every jurisdiction treats DBAs the same. Uh, in some states, you'll have some registration with the state office that gives you a little more protection. It's you know it's posted on a public site, uh, whereas some other states that don't require filing of your DBA, it's going to be a lot less official and you're going to have a lot less protection with it. And if something were to happen, let's say you operate under a DBA and somebody else uses your brand or sues you under your business name, your DBA, you may not have any sort of liability protection. With that in mind, you know, it's important to know whether the DBA is used in your state, offers any sort of protection or falls under your legal entity. By making sure it does, you may have a little bit more protection uh, as far as brand protection, as far as liability protection goes. So that might not always apply to your jurisdiction. It's important to know which one it falls under. And that's definitely an area where you're going to want to get local legal advice. Uh, As far as brand protection goes, DBAs aren't going to be your best form of brand protection. You know, you still may want to consider a trademark or a copyright if you have a logo of any value or brand name of any value. So do know the difference between 
you know, registering a name, a DBA versus actually protecting your company's business and overall brand image. Now, if it is value in your jurisdiction, you're going to want to make sure you're doing a super localized brand versus, you know, something global. For example, uh, let's say you're in a town and your DBA is something related to, you know, barbecue in your town. Know that, you know, there's barbecue on a national level, but if you're going to go with something that's very localized and related to your area, that's going to offer you a little bit more brand protection because you're not going to run into somebody else using the same name in another state if you decided to expand. So understand that there's some value there in brand recognition. Now, if a DBA is not valid in your jurisdiction, um, do know that you don't have to give up there. You do have other options. Like I mentioned, if you're able to get a trademark or copyright of any sort that could offer you some protection on a national scale, even though the DBA may not be valid to use in your area alone, you can at least protect your brand uh, at a national level and see what kind of protection you can offer or you can obtain. So that way you can go forward with that brand and still use that image. And what do you recommend as far as like, should we be doing a Google search? Like, how big is this DBA? (laughs) And if it pops up, it's like, like Google, right? Like you do a Google search. Oh, maybe I shouldn't use the DBA Google. I Uh guess like, is there anything that we should do so that we don't get sued because we're using someone else's name, right? Definitely, definitely. So what I always recommend to friends and to clients is anytime you're considering going into business and using a name or using a logo, definitely do a Google search. You don't have to get super deep with it, but even if there are not protected names. Let's say you're using a name that's like, uh, you know, John's Barbecue. I would want to Google that and see who else is using that. You know, John's a super common name. Maybe it's being used somewhere else. Even if they haven't registered it or protected in any form, you still run the risk of brand recognition. And if one of your customers Googles that same name and comes up with a different business, you don't want them run to that alternate business instead on accident, giving them a call and ordering barbecue through them. Keeping that in mind, not just from a legal standpoint, but also from just business operations, as much as possible, try to keep an original name. If you've already started doing business under a name or you really are in love with it and you find somebody else is using it, then you might want to consider seeking legal advice of how you can get ahead of them and, and, and protect that name. Or if it's already protected by them, how you can navigate that to avoid, I guess, legal run-ins with that similar name to business. And so this is the question we get all of the time. So like, what are some of the legal requirements having cameras in a clinic or even having cameras in home when you're doing services for HIPAA and state privacy? When it comes to HIPAA and privacy laws in general, ignorance is not going to be a reliable defense. That's something to always keep in mind, you know, simply stating, oh, I didn't know this or that. That's not going to be good enough to defend if you have a violation. Um, you need to be up to date for your business, whether you know you have HIPAA potential violations or privacy issues. You need to be aware of that and do your research and get ahead of that. So kind of seeking out the, the necessary advice for that will go miles. Now, if you're going to have recording devices in your workplace or clinic setting, know that pretty much always you have potential for privacy and HIPAA violations. And the best way to navigate that is notice and awareness to not only people visiting your clinic, but also creating that awareness to your employees and staff to know, here's what we have going on. Here's what we're recording and make sure that they're aware and know the implications of it. So that way they also are not violating it. Now, if you're going to be recording stuff for HIPAA purposes, you want to go through various levels of procedural protection and making sure it's not only encrypted, but you have a, a reliable, consistent process for the way you manage that data. And, you know, there, there's going to be a cost to, that comes along with managing that and protecting it, but that should be definitely a priority over 
over simply installing cameras and just being ignorant to what could happen. Uh, additionally, if you're going to have cameras, um, you're going to want to have patients that come in should be, like I said, be made aware. Now, whether that's through signage on the walls saying, you know, this is a recorded area, doesn't hurt to have in place. But what you'll also want to know is whether they've given you permission to be recorded. They may not be required everywhere, but it is good in general to put them on notice. And if you're going to be gathering permission, I mean, have it written, have that as part of their patient intake forms uh, that they are put on notice, have them sign, acknowledge and permitting you to to record them. You're going to have situations where some patients may lack the competence or the mental capacity or legal capacity if they're a minor to make their own decisions, grant permission. So if that's the case, be sure you, for example, of a child, make sure you have a parent that's permitting it as well. You may have issues if you're going to have cameras in your clinic and office space, where if you have some patients or employees that do consent to it, you've got a wide enough lens that there's a chance somebody that did not consent to being captured gets captured on that film. That's where the signage comes into play of, you know, this is a recorded area. Do not enter here if you don't consent to it, that sort of thing. If you do have patients that don't consent to being recorded, you will want to handle those situations extremely carefully. It may be your policy to that if they don't consent, they cannot be a patient. That might be something to consider. These are all things to depend how you want to navigate the risk of unintentionally capturing people that don't want to be recorded or don't agree to it. Because you want to have those various safeguards in place to minimize the risk, it just depends what level you're willing to go to to manage that risk that does exist. As long as you're training your staff, your administrative procedures, all sorts of safeguards are in place, you will limit that as much as possible. However, there are instances where it can still happen. And then just for the sake of anything beyond you know, security or clinical purposes, if you're getting footage of content that could be illegal in other forms, you would want to consider the policy of just destroying content that shows up in that form. Just that way, in general, you don't want that kind of footage being leaked or used for anything other than clinic purposes. And if it doesn't serve a, a serious clinical purpose, then there may not be a reason to hold on to that content at all. One question uh, that kind of came up with me is because I know like, you know, part of the intake packet that we have, and I, I believe it's just part of law is like notice of privacy practices. And it gives the patient the right to amend, to remove stuff from their record if they so choose. Is this an area where a patient could come in after the fact, whether it be the child comes of age or the parent changes their mind and says, hey, I want this removed from your system. Would a parent or a patient have the right to just say, hey, I need you to remove me from your system? Right. So I can't say with great certainty that uh, whether that's something that they would have the right to do or not from a legal risk standpoint. Uh, if you just want to minimize it, I would say it wouldn't hurt to comply with that. I mean, if it doesn't create great burden on your on your business or if you don't have use for that data anymore, it certainly wouldn't hurt to just comply with that request and remove data as requested. If it comes at a great cost to you, then it may be a weighing of risk versus reward on that front. Yeah, I could see that, especially in a clinic setting, you know, where mm -hmm. you're working with multiple children at the same time, that could really take a lot of effort yeah. to find every screen capture, right, or, or video right. of this one particular child. And then when I've talked to uh, our HIPAA consultant, he recommends, you know, he, determining whether this falls under HIPAA or not, what his consideration was that if you're using the video for treatment, 
it's HIPAA and it should be stored and secure. If it's not, then it would not be considered HIPAA and then it would not need to be maintained for seven years or whatever regulation that you need to follow, right? Do you have any advice on that um, and making that distinction? Because it seems like yeah. it's super vague, right? Like it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it's like navigating that piece of it has uh, been very difficult. Right. Yeah. So, so for example, you say if you're not using the footage for clinical purposes, for, for example, if you just had cameras for security, you know, you would want to avoid any gray areas. You'd want to have those cameras positioned in places like that is obvious difference between where the clinic setting is versus just the general place of business and what we use for security. Right. So if you have cameras that are looking at the parking lot or the general front lobby, you know, those are definitely just for security purposes, right? So having cameras placed there that are obviously for security, you're going to have a much greater chance of defending that, hey, I don't need to follow HIPAA rules for these cameras and this footage because they're definitely not for clinical purposes. So if that's kind of the argument you're going to go with, having a clear defining line is going to help your chances greatly on that front. What about with liability? If we use Mm -hmm. cameras just so we could make sure that our staff are protected, if a child's injured, um, we could go back and review the video. Does that um, is that a great area too? Because yeah, I mean, because a lot of times those cameras, yeah, you're saying it's to protect liability, but it's also going to be. Ca- I'm assuming it's going to be capturing footage in a clinical area, right? Is that safe to assume, Kim? Yeah. So if we're doing potty training and we have cameras in that area because we want to watch our staff and make sure everything's being done properly, mm-hmm. um, is that just us protecting our staff and our company, or is that now we're dealing with PHI and HIPAA? Yeah, that's definitely a gray area. In my opinion, it can be used on both fronts. And if even though you're claiming it is just for staff training or staff monitoring, if it does show a patient, you know, there's the chance it could be considered health information. So I guess it can vary how much is being captured. I mean, even to some extent, protected health information can be seen if, you know, just the fact that you have a patient in there, they may argue that that's protected information. There's just so much gray areas with the cameras capturing in a clinic setting that, if you want to play it safe, it wouldn't hurt to just have all of that footage be HIPAA compliant. If you want to play on the safe side of that gray area. Yeah, I think that's the other piece is right. Like, cause even if you're using it to monitor staff and to make sure that there's no abuse going on or whatever it may be, mm-hmm. keeping a video for 30 days even, right? Yeah. May not be enough to actually monitor that in any kind of appropriate way. I don't know, it's just video cameras, audio recording, video recording, it's all like very uh, difficult to navigate. Is there like a particular attorney that you would recommend like going to to talk specifically around state privacy and video and audio recordings? Yeah. I mean, if you do your research in your local jurisdiction, you'll find that there are attorneys that uh, that specialize in that area. There will be various attorneys depending on where where you're located. And, and, you know, cost does play a factor. Yeah. I mean, my recommendation for (laughs) when I'm consulting uh, clinics or providers is if you're wanting cameras, it makes a lot of sense why you would want cameras in the clinic area. Uh, But it's so important that before you set up that $50 camera, you really understand the laws in your state because 
it's not going to be $50 of damage, right? Like, so you got to outweigh that the potential risk that could be involved in that. And something else that to consider, at least what I recommend is make sure that you talk to your insurance uh, provider, right? Who's providing your general professional liability insurance to see what their recommendations are on cameras. And if that's even covered under your policy, because there may be uh, unintended risk involved in that and you're not even covered because this is a big deal and there is a lot of risk involved in this area. So it's really important that you understand that you're confident uh, before setting these up. All right. Another question we get just because the field, right, we're in a medical field. The assumption is that we would obviously need to be ADA compliant on our website. But if you can just talk about ADA compliance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, ADA compliance, that's something I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the viewers of this video are, are much more familiar with requirements than the average person. But in general, ADA stands for Americans with Disabilities Act. And this act is put in place so that way certain businesses are required to make their website, in this example, the, the compliant website, more accessible to those that may have disabilities. And, you know, those disabilities can range from visual, audio to just other input disabilities that they wouldn't otherwise be able to operate the website. And so in order to give those individuals access to your website, as if uh, somebody without an impairment does it, you need to put things in place so that way they can still use it. And is there some place that we can go? And I know like the last point is, you know, going to someone that specializes in this. Is there is there a particular attorney or resource that would be available? I assume it also depends on the state. I mean, yeah, I assume yeah. it does. Um, and so like, is there someone in specifically that we could go to to say, hey, should I I do this or yeah so with ada compliance the act is publicly available and you know anybody can look it up but as far as consuming that and interpreting uh the laws and regulations found under the ada you know there's there's plenty of costs and gray areas when you're navigating that kind of thing so there, there are plenty of free resources out there to check to see if your website's compliant sure. you can easily go to one of these free resources out there and populate your website into the resource and it'll usually do a check for you and say, you know, hey, you've met these requirements, you're compliant here or there. Me personally, you know, it's a, again, a risk versus reward thing here. You're taking in the cost of hiring a specialized attorney to be consulted to make sure you're on par with requirements, or you can trust one of these free resources. That's where you'd want to consult a specialized attorney in your jurisdiction to make sure you're all clear. Next question. Can I withhold pay, pay time off, PTO, or deduct pay for an unreturned item? And why or why not can I do this? Yeah, yeah so this, this question dives more to employment law, which is you know different versus the previous questions by a great amount. We're in, you know, we're in a different area of law here. Um, so as far as employment law matters go, you know, you're going to be varying depending on state a lot. Many states do allow your employers to deduct pay for unreturned items for various reasons. Now, if you're in a state that does not allow it, you know, I just want tough luck kind of thing. <laughs> but if you're in a state that does allow it, uh, it'd be in your best interest that documenting this kind of thing, this policy ahead of time is going to go a lot further than if you were to just start pulling wages from a final paycheck. If you have it documented ahead of time saying, you know, for the purpose of employment, 
we've got, we're giving our employee, you know, this laptop for work and you want to make sure they don't keep that. And if they keep it, then that's deducted from their pay. You have that value of the item and the policy in general, all documented in paper. And it's especially important if you have an employee with that kind of thing signing off, agreeing to it, you're going to run into much less problems when you do deduct from their pay. Or if you're in a state that prohibits such deductions, like I said, you're just going to have to try to eat that cost um, and run that risk. Uh, at the federal level, though, your biggest issue is just to avoid federal noncompliance on pay is you want to make sure if you deduct from their pay that it doesn't drop below minimum wage after the deductions to avoid, you know, not paying minimum wage. Mm -hmm. So if the, the minimum wage, let's say 10 bucks an hour mm -hmm. and you deduct so much of their pay because of a non-return laptop that brings their paycheck below that $10 an hour level, that's something to worry about on that front. So if it's something that's of high value, that might be something that needs to be coming out of paychecks prior to that, or you just have to eat some of the cost and deduct what you can to not hit that minimum wage level. So like if it's a $3,000 laptop or, you know, yeah. plus a $500 phone and they make $500 a, a week, uh, you're kind of out of luck. <laughs> yeah. You, you so, could run into problems there. Yeah. Right. Uh, like is there, cause what we have done in the past and I can't believe I'm going to admit to this on camera, <laughs> but, but like, you know, we've had some employees that seem to refuse to return stuff and rather than deduct it from their pay, we'll send like a certified letter in the mail. Uh, just mm -hmm. letting them know that this does have HIPAA protected uh, health information on it. And we do need this return back and we'll have to get the authorities involved if they aren't going to return their device. Uh, that typically uh, motivates people enough that, you know, they'll simply return the device, right? right. Is that something that you recommend <laughs> as educationally? <laughs> um, I, I would say if, if you can go that route, you're, you're playing a fear tactic here, right? That they yep. don't want to get in trouble with authorities. If you have to actually act on that threat, quote unquote, you know, you might have some greater costs associated with that than simply pulling out of a paycheck if you can have that agreed to ahead of time. But because I mean by this, if, if it's on the criminal side, you know, you call up the police and say, hey, they have stolen property. But if it's something where that's not getting the job done and you have to pursue them civilly, you're going to be paying a lot in legal fees. Right. So it seems like a good idea up front because all you're doing is sending a letter and it's not costing you anything really. Uh, but if you actually have to act on it, then it will get expensive. Right. Whereas on the other side, if you're just deducting from employees wages and that was all agreed to, and that's legit in your jurisdiction, you don't have to worry about that. There won't be any litigation, presumably, unless they want to sue for lost wages. So, and then the other thing, you know, like getting into lost devices or stolen devices, uh, what we recommend is that everything is set up so it can be remote wiped just so if you do not get that device returned, at least all of your information is erased and, and they don't have access to that anymore. Another, this is like uh, an ethical dilemma <laughs> in this field in particular, you know, so what are the implications of having a non-compete and are there other options that we can take in place of a non-compete? We see this happen quite often. Our recommendation to uh, the providers that we work with is please don't use a non-compete. We're helping children with special needs. Uh, so I'm not sure the non-compete should be used in this area. And I know the board has come out on non-competes. I actually don't think the board 
spoke out against okay. non-competes. So it's kind of a gray area. Yeah. So on that note, you know, as Kim says, non-competes are a gray area for, I guess, that board, but they're also a gray area just uh, in general, right? I mean, there are common practice for companies and I would say they're more used in situations where the skill set and work that's being performed or the access to like a customer base is a lot more specialized. However, a lot of companies just use non-competes just in general. The less specialized, the less localized and the less reasonable the overall non-competes are, the less likely a court of law is going to enforce a non-compete. And even with that, some jurisdictions, for example, I believe, I think California is one of those states that just simply won't enforce it. And the, the mindset behind that is just some, many states don't want to enforce or, or have a burden on somebody that they simply aren't allowed to work. Competition drives the American marketplace. And, and so they, if you want a free market, restricting that through agreements is kind of seen against that. However, there are cases where an occupant can be enforced if you're talking about a very specialized type of work. In general, lawyers aren't going to be aren't going to be able to have an occupant enforced against them because you know you're restricting their ability to practice law at that point. There are ways around that though, and and you know so you have alternatives to non-compete where it can be something like a non-solicitation where people can't steal your customers, cannot advertise to actively steal your customers. You know, customers can choose to leave anybody they want, but actively advertising and poaching somebody's employees can be something that's enforceable to some extent. Um, you can also put non-disclosure confidentiality agreements in place so that way trade secrets aren't being stolen. Uh, that's generally a lot more enforceable so long as those are reasonable and it's actually like intellectual property of the business is not it's not public knowledge. Uh, for example, if I can go find somebody's name and address, you know, on the white pages, is that really protected information? So that that's the kind of thing that you have to consider when having your confidentiality agreements cover protected information. And uh, we talked a little bit about this before the recording, but uh, what can we do as far as costs of training staff or uh, giving them higher education or supervising them for their board certification? Is there policies that we can put in place to try to mitigate the loss and revenue or the loss and profitability of the company because of the cost of training? And this is something that I failed to mention, but I've done a little bit of calculations on the cost of an RBT, like losing an RBT. And while the training itself can be free or almost free, the loss in hours, it, it can run as high as about $10,000. Um, mm-hmm. So I know that this is like a sore spot for a lot of business owners, training staff and having them go down the street to another company because they can make a little bit more money now. So what companies do to kind of protect themselves there? There's two things here at issue. Um, as we talked on the previous slide, if you're trying to get reimbursed for non-return items, similar mindset to keep in mind here, you know, can you be reimbursed for, even though this isn't a tangible product, you know, something like a training that the employee took and, and now they're walking away with it. The issue here is you're going to definitely want to have as much of this in writing as possible, some sort of agreement in place. And for that to be enforceable, one, you got to think to yourself, is this something that I can prove that here's my losses based on this employee leaving? When you train an employee, you know, time goes into it, but that's also a reasonable expectation. Now, lost value or wages because that employee leaves, are you going to be able to prove that in a court of law should that come up? And the second part of that is, even if you can't prove that, is what you're charging to be reimbursed, is it really reasonable? If you can validate your declared amounts, your damages, you know, as long as they're reasonable, that might be something you may be able to argue. However, just overall training an employee, you know, because they are providing value to your business after that training, unless that training is a 
of great expense and specialization, you may have a hard time enforcing that. Something that is common where companies will invest into somebody as like an additional degree, you know, and there is a very easy way to prove what the cost of that degree is. For example, if they go and get their MBA, a company pays for that. You have the invoices saying this is how much that degree cost. Something like this is a little bit more of a gray area. And so it may be harder to validate. And so that would be something that uh, you definitely want to do some more research into and get some local advice on. What about required trainings? Like, can we charge an employee for the reimbursement of a required training? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I would, uh, I would probably stay away from charging a reimbursement of a required training. Right. Now, there's a couple options. If you don't want to eat that cost, you could have an employee be required to take that training and get certified before coming on as an employee. And then they have to put in that, they have to be willing to do that ahead of time. Right. Uh, now, if you're just telling them after they've been an employee, I need you to take this training. If they refuse to do it, you know, at that point you can terminate them. Or if you require them to take the training, they take the training. I would think you would just have to eat that cost regardless of whether they stay or not. Because there are some funders and there it's getting to the point where most insurance companies now are requiring that have an RBT training. You know, coming into hiring this person that they need that training. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious if that, so you, again, educationally, <laughs> you think that we probably shouldn't be trying to get reimbursement for that required training because of a contract we have? Do you think that that would limit the feasibility of winning a court case? Yeah, I would say just because, you know, you were bound to it. And if, if you were bound to it, there's not as much value just independently on their side that had you not been bound to that contract, they may not have gotten that training otherwise. And so to enforce them having to pay back for it, I, I would think you'd have a hard time getting reimbursed for that and enforcing that. Okay. It's much different than like, you know, somebody who's excelling in your company, you think yeah. you're a great manager. So we're going to give you this optional university degree, right? Like, it, right. It's, yeah. All right. That was very good information. Even for my wife, I, I'm going <laughs> to make her watch this video. And then the last question we have is opening a nonprofit. Uh, do you have any suggestions on this? Yes, yes, yes. So as far as nonprofits go, I would say my first bit of advice is this is one of those types of companies that I would highly recommend getting either an attorney or somebody else that has experience in forming a nonprofit. Establishing a nonprofit takes a lot more administrative work to get up and running and then also to just maintain and keep going forward and being compliant versus other type of business entities. You know, unlike a profit organization, nonprofits are generally formed for a charitable purpose. And the idea is that a nonprofit does not distribute profits to its shareholders, but opts instead to retain those funds and further reinvest into that narrow scope of business. For example, a religious center like a church could file for and be granted nonprofit status because they're using all their money. Uh, it doesn't mean they can't pay you know, members and employees, but they aren't going to take out profits to reward themselves, right? They're going to keep reinvesting those funds into the business purpose. And the whole reason of getting nonprofit status is there are plenty of tax benefits associated with that status. And in order to stay compliant and make sure you don't lose that great tax status as a nonprofit, you're going to want to maintain compliance as much as possible. I guess additionally, uh, a lot of nonprofit entities do get donations. From a tax standpoint, you could be penalized very heavily if you're not receiving donations in a tax efficient manner. I was just wondering what type of attorney 
someone would seek out for setting up a nonprofit? Yeah, I would say on average, just any business law or business entity creation attorney is going to be able to do this. The more experience they have with nonprofits, the more likely they are going to be successful in it. When it comes to forming a nonprofit, similar to other entities, you're registering that company at a state level. But the nonprofit tax status that's most beneficial to you is if you're going to get that at the federal level, right? And so that requires working with the IRS. And for anybody that has experience working with the IRS, you know, that can be a long and very painstaking <laughs> uh, procedure. So um, not to knock on the IRS, but if you are looking to really go through that process on your own, you know, it can be done without an attorney, but just know you're going to have a lot of headaches ahead of you. And somebody that has specialized in this area or has experience with it is going to be able to get through it more efficiently and hopefully quickly. Getting a nonprofit up and running and getting that tax status can, can take you many months. And to do that alone, you know, you could be bringing on an extra layer of stress that you didn't foresee in, at the beginning. So that's all of our questions. Again, John, I really appreciate you coming on. I know that our, uh, the people watching will find this very helpful. If you're okay with it, uh, we're going to post your information just so that they can contact you if they are in your jurisdiction and they need some support. But again, thank you for coming on and uh, walking through these questions for us. Yeah, no problem. And again, if there are any questions about these questions, um, please post and let us know um, and, and hopefully we can get some more answers. But again, thank you all for coming and thank you all for watching. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, this is Stephen Smith with 3Pi Squared. If you would like to learn more about 3Pi Squared and the services that we offer, you can check us out at our website, www.3pisquared.com. You'll also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thanks. Thanks.